The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Tell me about the Oracle. My friends and I, we, uh, well, we have a lot to learn. <laughs> the Oracle is a way of life that removes care and doubt. It's a system of belief and behavior based on obedience to the Master Oracle. The rationalists that I've heard about, they think it's a system of repression and thought control. I think that's sad. Through love and care, I've seen even the most militant come around to our way of thinking. Yeah, I was just getting to the love and care part. It's all part of our training. You told me you were a welcomer. When do you expect to go to the other side? No welcomer knows the day or the hour. I've already settled all my earthly affairs, ceded all my assets to the Oracle. Wait a minute. You've given the Oracle all your assets, all your money? It'll do me no good where I'm going. But the Oracle can use it for many good works here. I know you believe that you're going to a better place. We all would like to believe that. But this portal to the other side, it's... Maggie, I understand your doubts. I had them myself in the beginning, but the more I learned, the more I gave myself to the Oracle, the more I realized it had to be true. I have nothing here. But on the other side, there will be no pain and confusion. Everything will be love and light. Jane, if you knew this traverse to the other side might bring your death, would you still go? Morning, London. It is Thursday, February 21st, 2013. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to the show today where Robert Vaughn was unable to be with us today. He called me early yesterday morning to give me a last-minute notice that he couldn't make it today, but will return next week. Has to work out of town today. 519-661-3600 is the number you can call. And today, I'm not quite sure how I would typify the overarching theme. I think it might be something to do with a detachment from reality, but we're going to start with a little look at... Um, Maybe a case against freedom of religion to some to some extent. Fake religions versus real religions. I don't know. But we're going to answer some basic questions asked, asked by a true believer. Also want to look at the fake zero tax increase in London. Is it a fake zero? I understand it's about 1.2% right now. But even so, was it a fake zero? I don't think so. I think 
politicians are trying to pose as fake capitalists, if anything. And that leads us to our third theme, and that is capitalism itself, where in fact it's been suggested that capitalism is the enemy of the middle class and it's un- it has to be fixed to help the middle class. So there are some of the basic issues that we will be talking about today. And again, 519-661-3600 is a number you can reach us if you want to join in on the conversation or email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. As you might have guessed from the opening clip, death is no deterrent to the true believer. Because, of course, death is not seen as an end by many people. Which is why, incidentally, truth and reality are, are of less value to them in some ways than to doubters, skeptics, or simply to people who accept reality as the final arbiter of truth, and hence of life. In the pages of the London Free Press on February 9th, Bruce Tallman, under the heading Questions for Thoughtful Atheists, has perhaps written what I thought was one of the most out-of-touch-with-reality-or-reason column I've had the experience of seeing in print for many a day. Uh, I don't know what he means by thoughtful atheist. Is that as opposed to non-thoughtful theists? I'm not sure. But in his, and he writes as following, and, he, and I guess he's doing a follow-up on a previous column done by Goldwyn Emerson, who had asked some, quote, questions for thoughtful Christians. So he thought, well, now I have some questions for him or any other atheist who would care to answer. And so here are the questions, and I thought they were fascinating in and of themselves, because they sure tell you a lot about the contrast in beliefs that's going on here. And the first question is, if there is no God, why is evolution on our planet heading in an increasingly spiritual direction? From matter, rocks and chemicals, to life, plants and animals, to thought, humans, to spirit, religion spreading around the globe. This direction of matter to life, to thought, to spirit, says that everything on earth is evolving toward the eventual reign of God. There have been major setbacks along the way, for example, two world wars in the last century. But still, the big overall direction is this. Four billion years ago, rocks. Now, world religions. Why is this? Well, evolution might be the most typical answer, but I think the word why that word suggests purpose and intent and explains fully why this question began with if there is no God. There is no why, just as there is no such thing as non-existence, except when it pertains to individual consciousness. Also, you got to realize, plants and animals didn't evolve from rocks. If that were true, then why do we still have rocks? Why don't they just evolve into animals? Nor did consciousness evolve from rocks. That process we don't fully understand. But there was an evolutionary process at play. And it seems to be a repetitive, replicating process that goes on throughout the whole universe. There is no why to it. There is just that it is. He writes, a favorite answer of atheists is that there are multiple universes, and it just happens to be that way in our universe. But in other universes, it would be different. I've never heard that answer, quite frankly, except in science fiction shows, like the one we started off today's show with. However, he says this is not an answer. This is pure metaphysical speculation since we have no knowledge of other universes. And that's correct. Now, why doesn't he apply that same logic to his own questions? Next question. Why have officially atheist states such as the former USSR, China, and the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia always engaged in mass slaughters? 
estimates in the Black Book of Communism by Stephanie Courtois in 1999 are that 85 million to 100 million people died in a span of only 80 years, more than all the religious wars in all of history. Well, the answer to that is, and you said the Black Book of Communism, not the Black Book of Atheism, these states engage in mass slaughter because they are collectivist. They are communist, not because they are atheist. It's what they do believe in in practice that creates their political environments, not what they don't believe in. The vast majority of citizens of these nations, by the way, are deeply religious and are, as a consequence, more prone to follow orders and obey authority and believe in the unreal promises of their leaders, atheist or not. You know, it's the old, old saying, faith and force. They are handmaidens. They go together. If you can't decide an argument by reason, then the only way you can settle it is by using force. And that always ends up being the final arbiter. The reality, of course, is that officially religious states are always responsible for great atrocity and mass slaughters. People who, who argue issues on faith have no recourse to, but to settle their differences with the use of force because reason is a closed option to them. So, not surprising that so many of the world's most religious nations are the ones at war and fighting with each other. In fact, religious hatred is possibly one of the biggest things going in terms of not getting along with each other on this planet. Then he asks, why is the atheist game plan not working out? Well, I think the answer to that is because there is no atheist game plan. That's a conspiracy fiction that exists only in the minds of true believers. And he asks, that is, why have science, reason, and education not solved all our problems? More people are attending university than ever, and yet our problems do not seem to be decreasing. Well, we'll find out a little more, get a first-hand example of what, what that problem is. In fact, science has introduced entirely new and deadly problems, such as the possibility of nuclear and biochemical warfare. Well, of course, with all, you know, good and evil aren't determined by the nature of, of nuclear. Nuclear can be used for good or for evil. These are all moral issues. Science hasn't solved our problems because most people don't use science, and most people ignore reality when they get into problems. Reason hasn't solved our, all our problems because most people don't employ reason. <laughs> they rely on faith or on the force of government to help them solve their problems, which are not solved that way for certain. Let me tell you, they just spread the problem around, which is why the problems get bigger. Education hasn't solved our, all our problems because education has been mo monopolized by the state, which teaches that reality and reason are generally impotent in the struggle to improve oneself. All our problems have to be solved collectively, don't you know? Or not at all, which usually means the latter, and which fully explains why science, reason, and education have not worked. No one's using them in the world of politics and religion, you know, which are almost one in the same world. Then he asks, why is the second part of the atheist game plan, that religion would eventually disappear, also not happening? According to a new study on global religious identity reported in Christian Century, 8 in 10 of the world's 7 billion people adhere to some form of religion. Christians make up the largest group with 2.2 million billion adherents, followed by Muslims with 1.6 billion. These two groups alone make up 54% of human beings. Well... Answer, once again, there is no atheist game plan, though I suspect, given the countries mentioned, that this reference has something to do with the communist game plan that would see the elimination not only of religion, but also of the bourgeois, the middle class, which has always been an enemy of socialists and communists worldwide. 
communism is a failure and, and has been in any attempt to better mankind's condition and is evil in and of itself, and that's why it fails all the time. Today, a part of the former USSR, Russia, under Putin, has firmly reestablished its connections with the official Russian church, which has put its support behind the dictator. And he writes, Churches in North America and Europe have declined in numbers, but Christianity has shifted to the Southern Hemisphere. And that's true, because in North America, we are a little bit more reasonable than they are in other parts of the world, less religious. So, that's not new. I guess I understand that uh, England, for example, and Canada have the largest atheist populations. So, nothing surprising there. Then he asks, Tolman asks, why do atheists attack only fundamentalists? Why don't we hear them debating with genuinely profound thinkers? And he names a bunch, quantum theology, spiritual implication of the new physics. I used to read some of that stuff and get a kick out of it. But, I guess there's really no argument beyond the fundamental. Either you believe a deity exists or you, you don't. Either a deity does exist or it doesn't. Some things are black and white. And you cannot objectively or rationally or scientifically carry on a debate with someone who's you know, just able to pull a faith-oriented or mystical rabbit out of the hat at whim and who's not disciplined by either reality or by the particular field being discussed. So... That's why you can't have those kinds of debates. If I'm if I'm dealing with the rules of reality and the other person's debating on, you know, make it up as you go along without even having to have evidence to point out his point of view, other than faith, of course, um, how can you have a debate on that level? Now, here's an interesting question. If there is no God, why is life foundationally good? Well, that's interesting because, I think, life is the standard of the good. Good and evil, right and wrong, have no application to immortals, be they human in the imaginary afterlife, or gods throughout eternity, or machines in the here and now. To such entities, the concept of good is irrelevant and has no reference or application. It's a moral concept, as is, I think, the concept of God itself in the minds of some. And that changes the whole nature of, of God in terms of being either a metaphysical being or a moral standard. And he writes, No doubt there is evil, but it is always a corruption of what was originally good. For example, war is always a corruption of original peace, and illness is always a corruption of original health. In spite of all the evil, there is always an underlying goodness. Often atheists try to extricate themselves from questions like this by saying, that's just the way it is. But this really explains nothing. Why is it the way it is? Well... First of all, corruption is, or, or sorry, evil is not a corruption of what was originally good. It's the opposite of good. Evil is the opposite of good. It's not a corruption of it. Uh, war is not a corruption of peace. War is the opposite of peace. These are just definitions. Illness is not a corruption of health. It's the opposite of health. Um, and evil and goodness are opposites. One is not part of the other or underlying it. And this is what frightens me with so many religious arguments, is that they always want to equate evil and goodness. Like, like anyway, we're all good, so any evil we did... Because it's all based on forgiveness, you see. You can, do, you can get away with anything, but God will forgive you as long as you believe in him, you see. Then he asks, if there is no God, why is love the central thing in life? Well, love is not a noun, it's a verb, I think. One loves or is loved. Love is not an object, it is an action motivated by the good. And that's why 
um, it's the central thing in life. And he, and he speaks about how poets and musicians have written and sung about this for a millennia, so it doesn't require any extrapolation, extrapolation ex- except to say that if not for the love between men and women and between parent and child, the human race would not exist. An interesting comment, but I don't know where God fits into this. Unless he's arguing that, and you hear this a lot, that God is love. End of story. And also the end of deity theory, if that's true. I mean, if God is love, then he can't be a deity at a time. Then he's an action, even by valid official religious definitions. I I don't think God equals love. Uh, I've always understood God to be the supreme being. A personification of the word and concept of existence, which is universally axiomatic. Because non-existence is an impossibility in reality, since there would be no reality, an impossibility in terms. You know, the old statement we've said here before, there ain't no such thing as nothing, honey, because if there were, wouldn't that be something? And then he asks, finally, why does everyone long for absolute love and peace and joy? That is, why does everyone long for God, whether they know that is what they are longing for or not? This certainly speaks to our opening clip today. I don't think it's true to say that everyone longs for absolute peace and joy because that's not what I'm seeing around me. From one extreme to another and almost everything in between, there are people who actually seem to live to cause pain and strife in the lives of others and of themselves. And there are those who are actually connected enough to reality to understand that such notions of absolute bliss and escape from individual responsibility are both dangerous and delusional. It's merely a manifestation of wanting something for nothing, expecting the unearned, expecting a reward without paying the price of exchange. If you're in a state of absolute love, peace, and joy, whatever that might mean, I have a feeling you might be dead. (laughs) I don't know. So basically, what's the issue here? Faith versus reason. I don't know why the writer Bruce Tallman, as a person of faith, should even feel it necessary to challenge atheists for any reason. Um, that's already I could speculate on that for a while why all the concern with atheists on the part of believers Uh, what is it that another person's lack of belief in whatever undefinable nebulous life view they happen to have what's that got to do with anything I think mostly picking on atheists is their way of affirming this entitlement to be irrational in the field of metaphysics and epistemology and atheists aren't attacking the religious or the religion per se, neither am I here. I'm, we're simply reacting to the obvious attack on reason and on reality by the religious. But not believing in something is no way to affirm any positive of something else. So while atheists are variously effective at arguing against certain dogmas, beliefs, and other superstitions that have come to be called religion... I don't call them religion. They have been abjectly terrible at defending reality or reason. Atheists aren't very good at that. And this makes them no different than many scientists, doctors, philosophers, and physicists who similarly cling to such beliefs even as all the evidence at their disposal would suggest an an entirely opposite conclusion. So... Now, when we return, uh, that's about all i got to say on that. When we return on the other side of this break, you'll be hearing the voice of one of the presenters at London's City Hall's public hearings on the budget as held last Wednesday. If you've ever wondered why government spending continues unabated and why bad times are still ahead, let me warn you that this presenter is an example of why this is so and why views expressed by the person are no different in kind, only in form or degree, than the views we just heard expressed by Bruce Tallman. 
Both in the end want something for nothing. Both are detached from reality in terms of achieving this unworthy goal. So coming up on the other side, fake capitalists attack the fake 0% tax increase. More zeros and non-existence to deal with. It is nothing sacred. Something not right about these people. If they hate somebody like Darwin, what are they going to think of me? They believe that life here is just to prepare you for life on the next world. Yeah, that's pretty much what I was taught in church. The faithful will be gathered up on the day of accounting. Same again, day of judgment, day of accounting. So what do they say about the unfaithful? I don't see any. It seems they all agree that the way of the oracle is the way to go. You know, the whole country follows one set of rules. No denominations, no political parties. No crazy guy holed up in Idaho with automatic weapons. Well, there are the rats. It's what they call the Rationalist Party. The Oracle apparently tolerates disagreement with their way as long as the rats keep it on a low flame. Even have debates on television, naturally the Oracle always wins. <laughs> so is it a religion? Is it a lifestyle? What? Yours I can figure. It's pretty much all those. On Earth Prime, we had a right-wing political movement that wanted to establish a system based on family values. Yeah, they have family values. Obviously, on this world, those people won that argument. According to this, they've got a lot of rules. No real freedom of speech without Oracle approval. No abortion, no sex without Oracle license. Right dress and behavior at all times. Sounds like a weekend at my Miranda's. Come on, let's just keep moving. So I don't understand. How did the people let this happen? I've been paying attention when they should have been. You don't vote, you get what you deserve. Yeah, well, at least they have technology. Cars, airplanes, CD players. Schools must be pretty good. It's all controlled by the Oracle. No social sciences. They call that stuff humanism, and they teach nothing but creation science. That explains demon Darwin. <laughs> no Big Bang, no relativity, no black holes, no chaos theory. Hi, my name is Susan Toth, and I think a few of you know me. Hi, Stephen. How are you guys doing? Hi to my friends. Hey. You're all my friends. Um, uh, I'm a lawyer, uh, just so you guys know, so no lawyer jokes while I'm up here. Um, but I am also a resident of London, and I'm here uh, on behalf of all residents. I'm not representing uh, any particular group today. Um, I'm sure you're looking at me, and if you know me at all, you're thinking that I'm going to be another one of those people begging you not to cut services. And I think I'm going to surprise you a little bit, because I am actually not here um, today to ask you not to cut services. Not even here to argue why 0% tax freeze is a terrible idea, just so you know. And I'm here actually just to talk to you about what brings us to this conversation, which in my mind is economic theory. Okay? So I was lucky enough to go to law school where economic theory was a very prevalent and ongoing topic. Um, so I'd like to start with a little business 101, if you will indulge me. So the city is a corporation, and I'm just going to quickly ask, what is the purpose of a corporation? And I'll go through this part fairly quickly. So the purpose of a corporation, in legal theory, is essentially a, a, a concept called shareholder primacy. What is shareholder primacy? Fairly simple concept. It's this idea that corporations exist solely to maximize profit, and by doing so, increase shareholder value. Okay. So pretty simple. When it comes to a city corporation, things have to be a little different, though, since we're not for profit. And we can start by asking, who are the shareholders in a city corporation? Citizens of London, that's who the shareholders are of a city corporation. Okay. 
So the purpose, um, so what would the purpose be of a city corporation? And I'm here to tell you that from my perspective, it's something that I'm going to refer to as citizen primacy. And when I say citizen primacy, I basically mean um, delivering goods and services for the benefit of shareholder citizens, the people who choose to live in London, and to provide value for money. I'm actually completely in support of keeping taxes as low as possible. But what I'm going to suggest to you is that um, we have to start during this economic climate and during a time when retention of youth is such a huge, huge problem by spending a little bit of money, okay? Here's the thing. No one's going to want to live in London unless we make it as livable a city as possible. And the way to accomplish this, I don't think, is to just focus on fiscal austerity. The biggest crisis we face right now is retention. We need to retain people. We need to retain youth. We need to retain immigrants. We need to retain newcomers. And I think this is actually the worst time to not invest back into the city. So how do we retain people? That to me is the biggest question. That's why the budget, everything we do tonight stems from that question. How do we retain people? And I just don't think that 0% is the way we're going to do that. So I'm going to go over what I consider the three sort of golden rules of business that we learned in law school. Number one, the best way to make money is to spend money. And how do we do that in the context of a city corporation? We invest in our health, our housing, innovation, environment, culture, public transit, and I know lots of people here are going to be talking about those things tonight. So what's my business rule number two? Providing customers with value for money. Final rule, and I'm wrapping things up. When it comes to corporate success, delivering satisfaction is key on all fronts. And when I say deliver satisfaction, I mean um, in the way that Forbes magazine actually put this, and this is where I got this, this business rule was Forbes, was if a company fails to satisfy employees, suppliers, and customers, it's only a matter of time before their stock prices are going to implode. I'm suggesting to you that in this case, your employees are sort of like city staff and yourselves. Suppliers would be our local businesses. Yes. Wrapping it up. And customers are citizens. So you want to increase your stock price, deliver, liver, deliver livability, and satisfaction. Wow. Uh, that was Susan Toth giving a presentation at City Hall last week. And none of the things that Ms. Toth has uttered here or in the rest of her presentation that we didn't play today really has any connection to the way things actually are. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a disaster of definitions. First off, you can't say that you're not representing any particular group and then say you're speaking on behalf of all residents. That's both a contradiction and a fraud. She has no one's authority to speak for them, and what she has said is certainly the exact opposite on every count of what I, as a resident of the city, would like to see done. She considers herself lucky to go to a law school where economic theory is prevalent. I, sh I think she got the short straw there because now all she sees is economic theory, and we'll be getting into that a little bit later too because even you know, capitalists themselves make the same mistake. The people who call themselves capitalists will be given a demonstration of that shortly. If economic theory was the purpose of the city hall meeting, then why was the public involved or invited? Shouldn't it have just been only open to economists, economists discussing theory and definitely not practice? In Susan Toss' curious interpretation of how things are, the city is solely a corporation, and corporations exist solely to maximize profit and increase shareholder value. 
except that she recognizes that the city is a not-for-profit entity and so is not a corporation in the economic sense she just described, only in the legal sense. A legal fiction, not an economic organization for production. That's, that makes it a difference. And this is why whenever we have a municipal guest on this show, the first question I ask is whether they view the city of London as a corporation or as a government. Invariably, they lean towards the former, corporation, because they all think they're capitalists. They think they're running a business and being capitalists, and I think that's the problem. We're dealing with fake capitalists. Since it's not a real corporation in the economic sense of the word, then Toth is free to make it all up as she goes along, undisciplined by the real definitions of words and concepts and economic and moral relationships. So in her make-believe world, shareholders are the citizens of London. Even though not a single citizen has any certificate indicating such shares, nor are there a given number of such shares to measure any such collective ownership. Not only are the citizens shareholders in her way of thinking, they are also the corporation's sole customer, another bizarre contradiction simply ignored. Customers are supposed to be voluntary participants, that's how economics works, and so are corporations. In a municipal government setup, which is government and politics, not economics, the relationship between the corporations and the citizen is a forced one. It's not a voluntary one. She says she supports low taxes. Not true. So let's spend more money. The truth. She supports higher taxes. Uh, you know, there's a standing joke among the normal London citizenry about how funny it is that supposedly university-educated professionals can get us into so much trouble when they plan at City Hall. Well, I think that the university education is part of the problem, and it inherently implies a theoretical environment, one separated and detached from, what else? Reality and experience. And the worst of, of the bunch are the economists and engineers who all see human beings as mere deterministic objects that they, for some unbeknownst divinely sanctioned reason, have some God-given right to manipulate for their purposes and fantasies. It's really funny, you know, when governments get into business, every, every failure is regarded as a success, and when business is seen by government, every success is a failure. I'm going to expand on that when we come to the other side of our upcoming break. But first, we'll be broadening also the conversation and the discussion to witness the same kind of economic errors being made by pro-capitalists about capitalism. Our next two or three audio bites originated way back in 1955 and were presented under the auspices of the National Education Workshop in Arkansas at the time. Now, while all of the economic arguments you'll hear are accurate and correct, they avoid any discussion of why capitalism is superior to all of the other economic systems. And that's because it's the only known moral economic system ever, ever defined and devised. And instead, they always focus on comparative advantage and the superior benefits of production created under capitalism over all the other systems. Which, of course, is true, but not the point. We'll return after this. For today's topic, let's join now a group of young people at the National Education Program Workshop, Arkansas. At the classroom lectern is Dr. Clifton L. Gaines, Jr., noted young historian. So let's examine the structure of American capitalism. There are three great pillars. The first and foremost of these is, who can tell us? All right, Louise. Isn't it the principle of 
private ownership of property? Yes, it is. This principle of private ownership is undoubtedly the most fundamental element in the structure of American capitalism. So private property is the foremost pillar supporting the American system and our personal freedom. That brings us to the second great pillar. Who can tell us what it is? All right, Mary. The profit motive. Yes, indeed. This is the stimulus that brings private ownership to life and expands its usefulness to society as a whole. In one sense, profit is property. Dr. Gaines, I once heard a clergyman say that the profit motive is not a good motive. Do you agree with him? I'm sure the clergyman wasn't a socialist or communist, but that happens to be what the socialist and communist say about the profit motive. And yet, most converts to socialism and communism joined up because of the promise of personal benefit or profit. Would a clergyman be able to fill his church if he told prospective members that there is no personal reward or profit in giving one's life to God? And now to the third of the three great pillars in American capitalism. All right, Gary. The open market. Yes, the open competitive market, where anyone can offer his wares for sale at whatever price he can get, is a benefit not only to business and industry, but to the individual as well. We have discussed socialism and communism in our last two classroom sessions. If each generation of Americans will develop a clear understanding of our American system of capitalism, how it works, and the comparative advantages it produces for all citizens, then neither socialism nor communism ever will become established in America. I guess he never heard of Obama. <laughs> You know, economic arguments will never sell capitalism to anyone. Only moral, moral arguments can sell anything like that. Because I mean, economically, I could argue that I can make a lot of money and call it a profit by robbing other people at the point of a gun. I could maybe even become very efficient at it. But morally, robbing people at the point of a gun is an unacceptable economic theory. Yet this is a very economic theory that is so often at the root of all non-capitalistic economic systems. That's what makes them non-capitalistic. It's almost like saying non-voluntary. Now, as I said just before the break, you know, when government gets into business, every failure is a success. And when business is seen by government, every success is a failure. Well, to give you an example of that, Chip Martin just wrote a, a, a small piece in the Free Press on the 16th. And it says, Arena exceeds targets, referring to the Budweiser Gardens. And the subheading reads, Budweiser Gardens generated $465,459 for the city in 2012, with a total attendance of 654000 And I worked that out, and that means that the city gets about $0.72 cents per attendee at the Budweiser 
Built for about $40 million, the public-private operation has also attracted acclaim among those who rank such facilities in North America, he writes. When it opened, it was projected it would generate annual net proceeds to the city averaging $169,563. Deputy City Treasurer Mike Turner says in a report to the Investment and Economic Prosperity Committee, Even the name of that committee scares me. But the average net income has been $274,015 annually. Quote, the Budweiser Gardens continues to outperform pre-build expectations, Turner said. Turner said, as of the end of 2012, City Hall still owes $19.7 million for, for, uh, for the facility, and that will be retired in 2023. Now, they give lowest and highest attendance figures, and they're all pretty much in that range. But here we have a typical financial disaster being touted as a municipal success. I guess it depends what you value, doesn't it? At an original $40 million cost, paying back this capital expenditure alone, never mind operating expenses, with an average net income of $274,000, let us assume we'll get, we'll, we'll get that, work it out. It'll take 146 years just to break even. Isn't that something? Now, the other thing, too, is that, you know, the article implies that this money is all coming from, that we're going to pay off the debt from proceeds from what's going on at the JLC or at the, at the BUD now. But that's not true. It's coming from the taxpayer. And in that light, I have to really turn everyone's eyes to a former show we did here right at CHRW on Just Right, show 274. You can go online, our November 1st broadcast with Orlando Zampronia, who, of course, was a former deputy mayor of the city and was on board of control for many years. And when we asked him about this very thing, the JLC Budweiser Gardens, he said, and I quote, I get literally angry when I hear people talk about the arena making big profits. Yes, it's a nice thing to have. But eventually you have to ask yourself the question, who pays and where does the money go? Consider two things. The first, the the deal that was struck with the managers of it allows them to pay on net profits. That means they can write off just about everything. Secondly, the city paid for the building and the land. And the taxpayers been paying something like two and a half million dollars a year in taxes and getting about one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand back. Big deal, excuse me, which is exactly the figures we were just told by Chip Martin. And this is this is Orlando talking. Thirdly, because the city leased the land on which the building is built, they pay no tax. The city used to earn at least $300,000 a year from parking revenue on that lot. They don't even earn that anymore. Well, uh, 300000 if that's true, that's more than they're making on the Budweiser Gardens now, 274000 They should have just stuck to the parking business they were in. And then he, then he pointed out that a lot of politicians get screaming mad about casinos because they're a drain on the public purse. They suck up money from the local economy and it goes to the province, but at least some of it comes back in the form of hospital support and so forth. And he says, consider that the Budweiser Center probably earns in the range of 40 to $60 million a year from acts, but... By far, the majority of those acts are from outside of Canada. Most of that money is now sucked out of the local economy and goes to the United States. Today, every single government is in debt so far that they have very little wiggle room. We are on the 
on a major confrontation with reality, end quote. And that was uh, Orlando Zampronia on the show here just a couple of months ago. Well, you wouldn't know it from the voices calling for more spending down at City Hall, would you? So that's just one look at the whole Budweiser Center issue. So you have all these people wanting to, to, to be capitalists, and everybody's wondering what's going on. Saw a very upsetting essay in, where was this? This was uh, by a QMI agency just last week in the Free Press opinion column by Christia Freeland. Capitalism no longer working for the middle class. And she writes, U.S. President Barack Obama's State of the Union speech this week confirmed it. The preeminent political and economic challenge in the industrial democracies is how to make capitalism work for the middle class. Well, my first question is, to what capitalism and where is she referring? No answer or definition on that. Capitalism does not work for the middle class. The middle class thrives within a capitalistic framework, which no longer exists in the industrialized democracies, the majority rule anti-capitalist fake versions. Capitalism is a separation of the, st- of the state and economics. Tell me where that exists in, in any jurisdiction that she is talking about. How are you going to make that work if it doesn't even exist? This is simply not the reality in this age of Obama and fiscal cliff economics. Then she writes, there's nothing mysterious about that. The most important fact about the United States in this century is that middle class incomes are stagnating. The financial crisis has revealed an equally stark structural problem in much of Europe. Even in a relatively prosperous age, for all of today's woes, we have left behind the dark, satanic mills and workhouses of the 19th century. This decline of the middle class is more than an economic issue. It is also a political one. The main point of democracy is to deliver positive results for the majority. Oh my goodness. If, you know, if this is what the writer believes that the purpose of democracy is, then she is worse than ignorant on the subject. Democracy differs from theocracy and other forms of totalitarian states by virtue of the reality that in a free democracy, which is capitalism, the authority of the government originates in the rights of the people being governed and cannot extend beyond that. Exactly like Susan Toth, who at City Hall believes municipal corporations exist to maximize profit and increase shareholder value. So, too, Christia Freeland believes that democracy is just like Susan Toss Municipal Corporation, a free goodies factory for the citizen customer. To them, it's all about economics. This is a complete vacuum. This is not what government's about at all. You're not even on the right page. You're not in the right book. You're not in the right department. Economics in a non-economic context, I mean... This is in a political context where market forces do not play any role. So what do you expect? I don't know. She writes all of, all of which is why understanding what's happening to the middle class is urgently important. No better place to start, she says, than by talking to David Autour, an economics professor at MIT. Autour is one of the leading students of the most striking trend bedeviling the middle class, the polarization of the job market, which is a nice way of saying the economy is being cleaved into high-paying jobs at the top and low-paying jobs at the bottom, while the middle-skill and middle-wage jobs that used to form society's backbone are being hollowed out. Well, that's easy to understand. Um, 
mainly because of minimum wages, forced government benefits, pensions, have all combined to, to kill those middle middle income jobs. Those are the people that are getting hurt every single time. Then she says, but when I asked him this week what had gone wrong in the U.S. middle class, he gave a different answer. He said, the main problem is we've just had a decade of incredibly anemic employment growth. All of a sudden, around 2000 and 2001, things just slowed down. Academics can usually be counted on to have a confident explanation for everything. That's why I was surprised and impressed by Altour's answer when I asked him where the jobs had gone. No one really understands why he said. <laughs> wow. So, ignorance is bliss in this case, too. It was a winningly modest reply, she replies. And she says uh, that other colleagues agree that this is what's happening to the middle class. Well, they think it's all about technology and change. Uh, uh, technological change, that is, and trade. Talk a little bit more about that when we return on the other side of this, a continuation of that National Education Workshop from 1955. Return after this. So let's see if we can develop a better understanding of capitalism. But first, who will define for us the term capital? That is, in its economic sense. All right, Joan. Suppose you define it for us. Well, money. Capital's money. That's right, but only partially right. Let me demonstrate. Here is a dime. Suppose I take this dime and buy some ceramic clay. Now then, my money, which is capital, has been converted into raw material, which it logically follows must also be capital. I mold this clay into a child's toy animal. You would regard the energy expended by me as capital. Now when I finish, I bake this clay toy in my oven at home. This oven, or any machine I might use in achieving the final product, must also be regarded as capital. Then I add the final touch and sell this toy for 39 cents, or at least I try to. And if I should succeed, I take the 39 cents, reinvest it in clay, and start the cycle again, employing again all the farms which capital may take, as raw materials, as energy, as machine, and so on. Capital, in a few words, is money at work producing things. Capitalist. Yes? Well, what if you have to borrow that money like so many businesses do to start that cycle? Then that makes the lender a capitalist, too since it is his money at work producing something, and he becomes a part of the cycle. Capitalism is a system in which wealth or capital is used to produce goods for sale, or in other words, to produce new wealth. But Professor Gaines, aren't there different kinds of capitalism? Yes, there are, and the differences can be vitally important. State capitalism is often the first stage of socialism. We might say that state capitalism exists when the government achieves a combination of ownership and control in business and industry large enough to permit it to dominate the nation's economy. And there are forms of capitalism in which production and distribution are governed by cartels or monopolies, fixing prices and permitting no competition. This farm existed in many European countries in the time of Karl Marx, 
and during this century, before socialism or communism gained control. Yes, John, an important fact that we must emphasize is that American capitalism is quite unique. There never has been a system quite like it in all history. It's described as a mesh of razor-sharp metal triangles just big enough to get your fingers in for a handhold. But when you try to climb, your weight closes the triangles, amputating your fingers. Don't worry about the pain, it won't last long. Anti-personnel mines on the fence posts on both sides of you are triggered, blasting you with a full pound of buckshot from each side. For Ronald Reagan, it wasn't about abstract power politics, but what it meant in human costs the destruction of people's lives. A five-year-old boy fell into the Spree River. Firemen from West Berlin started to go to his rescue. An East German patrol boat barred them from entering the water. The five-year-old boy drowned. But they did tidy things up. Three hours later, East German frogmen recovered his body. Communism is a form of insanity, a temporary aberration which will one day disappear from the earth because it is contrary to human nature. But I wonder how much more misery it'll cause before it disappears. Well, it'll disappear as soon as people stop looking at government as some capitalistic organization. You know, Ronald Reagan had it right that communism is a form of insanity. But I think he was wrong in believing that it is a temporary aberration. The error being solely in the word temporary. It's always interesting that what starts out as mere economic theory, communism, turns out, as, as it always does, to be a political and moral obscenity because they forget the nature of the things that they're working with, with governments. They think that government is the same as a business, and they can't tell the difference. And that's pretty well the problem you see with all governments getting involved in businesses. They think they can make things better because they're buying votes. This is the politician at work. And... You know, getting back to this this study that um, Christia Freeland was looking at, she was talking about how, um, just getting to the point where some of the other economists who were looking at the whole situation in the States, they're now blaming, for example, technology and trade on causing a lot of problems. However, they found that technology led to job polarization, but the the net employment effect was minimal but trade opening up trade in the short term seemed to lose some jobs for the US which only makes sense because what's happening is a lot of the jobs that were done in the US are now being taken over by people who couldn't do them before in other countries and that's the way it should be as long as it's all a voluntary issue now um they get into a whole deal about uh, you know how we're shipping you know US China trade is a one way street well that's not true they're getting our money we're getting their goods <laughs> it's a two way street everybody only looks at the money totally wrapped up in that money they don't care what they get for the money but if the money's going over there then they got something that we want and who cares about what we got that they gave us but here's a interesting conclusion to her article the profound difference is why politics in the rich democracies are so pol polarized right now, talking about all these changes in jobs. And she says, capitalism and democracy are at cross purposes, and no one yet has a clear plan for reconciling them. Well, I don't know. Why is it that all these consumer advocates, because uh, Christina... 
Christia Freeland is managing director and editor of Consumer News for Thompson Reuters. It always seems that consumer people are so left of Karl Marx, all the ones we see in the public. You know, speaking for the consumer is the one thing they do not do, and that was certainly true of the entire underlying theme of this essay. If you're looking for a plan to reconcile capitalism and democracy, you could start by defining both capitalism and democracy. And in so doing, you would discover that capitalism and democracy are the only two socioeconomic political systems that are compatible with each other. What is incompatible with democracy is collectivism in whatever form, shape, or degree it's exercised by governments. Democracy as defined and practiced by, you know, the morally and economically bankrupt intellects on the subject, is merely majority rule, in which the name of the game, economically, is to get something for nothing, which is a metaphysical impossibility. That means it's impossible, can't happen, which is the real reason that, quote, politics and the rich democracies are so polarized right now, end quote, because they're trying to do something that's unreal and cannot be done. One side insists it can, the other side insists it can't. One side is maybe more on the side of reality than the other, but for some reason it can't make any headway. Capitalism is most certainly at cross-purposes with this kind of majority-rule fake democracy. Because capitalism is mankind's only known moral system of economic governance, and it does not allow Peters to rob Pauls to, to acquire wealth. That's just doesn't allowed in capitalism. Thou shalt not steal. Every other system, uh-uh, that's okay. And right away, there's a moral disconnect. Like the consequence of what we're doing, well, how come it never works when we steal from other people and we're doing this and, you know, we help one person but it seems to get worse and we have ten more and it gets worse and worse and worse. Well, that's why we have morality. It's supposed to stop all that. That's why Moses came down from the mountain, handed down the Ten Commandments, for heaven's sakes. It was all about politics. It wasn't about religion and belief. And so, you know, you almost wonder what this writer is suggesting, too. You know, what are, what are they suggesting here? That economic situations should remain static? That because there are changes, that this is bad in and of itself? Should it be like the weather? <laughs> because the left is on that side of that issue, too. But, uh, you know, should the so-called you know, middle class, meaning uh, overpriced labor, I think is what she's referring to when she says middle class, should they forever hold their status by political edicts of some sort? Well, I think no, and that's the changes that we're going through and seeing a lot of changes. I think it's very important to realize the importance of language and definitions. And this is a mathematical principle. The reason you want accurate, objective language is it's a necessity. Not so you can prove yourself better than some other person, but so you can arrive at the right answer. These poor people that are using words, you know, like like uh, Miss Toth talking about the city being a corporation and, and talking like it's a business when she's dealing with A is B. It's not A is A. She's, she's, she's gone past the philosophical point of the law of identity. You have to deal with, well, you know, a cat is not going to bark. A dog is not going to go meow. You deal with what you've got, and that's what you have to deal with. And you'll never get to the right answer. If, if one person is using the word capitalism to mean something oppressive and the other person says it means correctly it just means a separation of state and economics 
those two people can never have a conversation with each other using that same word. Just as two mathematicians could not possibly share an equation on a piece of paper if for one of them the number 5 represented a value of 8 and for the other person it represented 5. You can't do that. The whole... The, everything would collapse. All logic. Everything you can think about collapses. And that is what's happening in language. We see it in religion. We see it in politics. We see it even in science. And that's the sad reality. So I've got a few of my own new definitions to end the show off with. And I think one of them should be called excessive profits. What's the, that definition? I think whenever you hear anybody use that term, just know that it's a term used for measuring the greed of the person using the term, because there's no such thing as excessive profits. And of course, majority rule, I call that a mockery of democracy. You know, this, it's another kind of democracy. Mockery raised to a crassy. As in, you demock me, sir. <laughs> You've been democked every time they raise your taxes. And finally, what's the new definition for 0% getting back to the nothing we've been talking about all day? Well, 0%, that's the difference between left-wing and right-wing. <laughs> and on that, I'll end the note today. Join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. We'll be right back here. We'll see you. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. <laughs> now for a look at the future with the news headlines 20 years from now. It's over to you, Dan Rowan. Here are the headlines 20 years from now. Item, Cuba, 1988. Fidel Castro's speech revealed that following the acute shortage of gasoline, tobacco, sugar, rum, and Tabasco sauce, there is now an acute shortage of Cubans. 